0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Chapter 2. Part 1. Raskolnikov was not used to crowds, and as she said before, he avoided society of every sort, more especially of late. But now, all at once, he felt a desire to be with other people. Something new seemed to be taking place within him, and with it he felt a sort of thirst for company. He was so weary after a whole month of concentrated wretchedness and gloomy excitement that he longed to rest, if only for a moment, in some other world, whatever it might be. And in spite of the filthiness of the surroundings, he was glad now to stay in the tavern. The most of the establishment was in another room, but he f- frequently came down some steps into the main room, his jaunty tired boots with return overtops coming into the view each time before the rest of his person. He wore a full coat and a horribly greasy black satin waistcoat with no cravat, and his whole face seemed smeared with oil, like an iron lock. At the counter stood a boy of about fourteen, and there was another boy, somewhat younger, who handed whatever was wanted. On the counter lay some sliced cucumber, some pieces of dried black bread, and some fish. Chopped up small, all smelling very bad. It was insufferably close, and so heavy with the fumes of spirits that five minutes in such an atmosphere might well make a man drunk. There are chance meetings with strangers that interest us from the first moment before a word is spoken. Such was the impression made on Raskolnikov by the person sitting a little distance from him, who looked like a retired clock. The young man often recalled this impression afterwards and even ascribed it to the presentiment. He looked repeatedly at the clock Partly no doubt because the latter was staring persistently at him, obviously anxious to enter into conversation. As the other persons in the room, including the tavern keeper, the clerk looked as though he were used to their company and weary of it, showing a shame of condescending contempt to them as persons of station and culture inferior to his own with whom it would be useless for him to converse. He was a man over fifty, bald and grizzled, of medium height and stoutly built. His face, bloated from continual drinking, was of a yellow even greenish. Hinge with swollen eyelids, out of which keen reddish eyes gleamed like a little chinks, but there was something very strange in him. There was a light in his eyes as though of intense feeling, perhaps there were even though an intelligence, but at the same time, there was a gleam of something like madness. He was wearing an old and hopelessly ragged black dress-coat, with all its buttons missed except one, and that one he had buttoned, evidently clinging to his last trace of respectability. A crumpled shirt-front, covered with spots and stains, protruded from his canvas waistcoat, like a clock he wore no beard, no moustache, but had been so long shaven that his chin looked like a stiff greyish brush. And there was something respectable and like an official about his manner, too. But he was restless, he ruffled up his hair, and from time to time let his head drop into his hands dejectedly resting his racked elbows on the stained and sticky table. At last he looked straight at Raskolnikov and said loudly and resolutely, — May I venture on it, sir, to engage you in polite conversation, forasmuch as though your exterior would not command respect my experience admonishes me that you are a man of education and not accustomed to drinking. I have always respected education when in conjunction with the genuine sentiment, and I am besides a titular counsellor in rank. Marmaladev, such is my name, titular counsellor. I make bold to inquire. Have you been in the service? Now I am studying," answered the young man, somewhat surprised at the grandiloquent style of the speaker, and also at being so directly addressed. In spite of the momentary desire, he had just been feeling for company of any sort, on being actually spoken he felt immediately his habitual, irritable, and uneasy aversion for any stranger who approached or attempted to approach him. "'A student, then, a formerly student,' cried the clerk. "'Just what I thought. I'm a man of experience, immense experience, sir.' and he tapped his forehead with his fingers in self-approval. You've been a student or have attended some learned institution. But allow me, he got up, staggered, looked up his jack and glass and sat down beside the young man facing him a little sideways. He was drunk, but spoke fluently and baldly, only occasionally losing the thread of his sentences and drawing his words. He pounced upon Raskolnikov as greedily as though he too had not spoken to soul for a month. Honed sir, he began almost with solemnity, poverty is not a vice, that's a true saying, yet I know too that drunkenness is not a virtue, and that of this even truer, but beggary on it sir, beggary is a vice, in poverty you may still retain your innate nobility of soul, but in beggary never, no one, for beggary, a man is not chased out of human society with the stick; he is swept out with the broom, such so as to make it as humiliating as possible, and quite right too, for as much as in beggary, I am ready to be first to humiliate myself. hence the Potter House, honoured uh, sir, a month ago. Mr. Lebezadnikov gave my wife a beating. And my wife is a very different matter from me. Do you understand? Allow me to ask you another question out of a simple curiosity. Have you ever spent a night on a hay barge on the Neva? Uh, no, I have not happened to answer Traskarnikov. What do you mean? Well, I've just come from one of its the fifth night. I've slept so. He filled his glass, emptied it, and paused. Bits of hay were in fact clinging to his clothes and sticking to his hair. It seemed quite probable. That he had not undressed or washed for the last five days, his hands particularly were filthy; they were fat and red, and black nails. His conversation seemed to excite a general, thought languid interest. The boys at the counter fell to sniggering. The innkeeper came down from upper room apparently on purpose to listen to the funny fella, and sat down at a little distance, yawningly, lazily, but with dignity. Evidently, Marmoladev was a familiar figure here, and he had most likely acquired his weakness for the high flown species from the habit of frequently entering into conversation with strangers of all sorts in the tavern. This habit develops into a necessity in some drunkards and especially in those who are looked after sharply and kept in order at home. Hence in the company of other drinkers they try to justify themselves and even, if possible, obtain consideration. Funny fellow, pronounced the innkeeper, and why don't you work? Why aren't you at your duty? And you are in the service. Why am I not at my duty on it, sir? Marmaladev went on, addressing himself exclusively to Raskolnikov. As though it had been he who put that question to him. Why am I not at my duty? Does not my heart ache to think what a useless worm I am? A month ago, when Mr. Libizatnikov beat my wife with his own hands, I lay drunk. Didn't I suffer? Excuse me, young man, has it ever happened to you, well, to petition hopelessly for a loan? Yes, it has, but what do you mean by hopelessly? Hopelessly, and with a foolish sense, when you know beforehand that you will get nothing by it. You know, for instance, beforehand with positive certainty that this man, this most reputable and exemplary citizen, will on no consideration give you money. And indeed, I ask you, why should be? For he knows, of course, that I shan't pay it back from compassion. But Mr. Klobizyatnikov, who keeps up with modern ideas explained the other day that compassion is forbidden nowadays by science itself, and that's what is what is done now in England, where there is a political economy. Why, I ask you, should he give it to me? And yet though I know beforehand that he won't, I said off to him and Why do you go, put in Raskolnikov. Well, when one has no one, nowhere else one can go. For every man must have somewhere to go, since there are times when one absolutely must go somewhere. And my own daughter first went out with a yellow ticket, and I had to go. My daughter has a yellow passport, he added in parenthesis, looking with a certain uneasiness at the young man. No matter, sir, no matter, he went on, hardly with apparent composure, when both the boys at the counter coughed and even the innkeeper smiled. No matter, I am not confounded by the wagging of their heads, for everyone knows everything about it already, and all that is secret is made open. And I accept it all, not with contempt, but with humility. So be it, so be it! Behold the man! Excuse me, young man, can you? Now, to put it more strongly and more distinctly, not can you but dare you looking upon me a set where I am not a pig. The young man did not answer a word. Well, the orator began again stolidly and with even increased dignity, after waiting for a laughter and the rooms to subside. Well, wow, so it. I'm a pig, but she's a lady. I have the semblance of the beast, but Katerina Ivanovna, my spouse, is a person of education and an officer's daughter. Granted, granted, I'm a scoundrel, but she's a woman of the noble heart full of sentiment, refined by education. And yet, oh, if only she felt for me. Honored sir, honored sir, you know every man ought to have at least one place where people feel for him. But Katerina Ivanovna, though she is a magnanimous, she is unjust. And yet, although I realize, but when she pulls my hair, she only does it out of pity. For I repeat, without being ashamed, she pulls my hair, young man. He declared, with redoubled dignity, hearing the sniggering again. But my God, if she would but once! But now, no. no. It's all in vain, and it's no use talking, no use talking, for more than once my wish did come true, and more than once she has felt for me, but such is my fate, and I'm a beast by nature. Rather, assented the keeper, yawning. Marmoledov struck his fist resolutely in the table. Such is my fate, such is my fate. Do you know, sir, do you know? I have sold her very stockings for drink. Not for her shoes. That would be more or less in the order of things. But her stockings, her stockings, I have sold for drink and my hair shawl I sold for drink, a present to uh, her long ago, her own property, not mine. And we lived in a cold room, and she caught cold this winter, and has begun coughing, and spitting blood too. We have three little children, and Katerina Ivanovna, is at work from morning till night. She is scrubbing and cleaning and washing the children, for she's been used to cleanliness from a child. But her chest is weak, and she has a tendency to consumption, and I feel it. Do you suppose I don't feel it? And the more I drink, the more I feel it. That's why I drink too. I try to find sympathy and feeling in drink. I drink so that I may suffer twice as much. And as though in despair he laid his head down on the table. Young man, he went on, raising his head again. In your face, I seemed to read some trouble of mind. When you came in, I read it, and that was why I addressed you at once. For in unfolding to you the story of my life, I do not wish to make myself a laughingstock before these idle listeners, who indeed know all about it already, but I am looking for a man of feeling and education. Know that my wife was educated in a high-class school for the daughters of noblemen, and on leaving she danced the shawl dance before the governor and other personage for which she was presented with the gold medal and a certificate of merit. The medal, well, the medal of course was sold long ago, but the certificate of merit is in her trunk, still, and not long ago she showed it to our landlady. And although she is most continually on bad terms with the landlady, yet she wanted to tell someone or other of her past honours. Of the happy days that are gone. I don't condemn her for it, I don't blame her, for the one thing left her is recollection of the past, and all the rest is dust and ashes. Yes, yes, she is a lady of spirit, proud and determined. She scraps the floors herself and has nothing but black bread to eat, but won't allow herself to be treated with disrespect. That's why she would not overlook Miss Lusiatnico's rudeness to her. And so when he gave her a beating for it, she took her bed from the hurt to her feelings than from the blows. She was a widow when I married her, the three children, one smaller than the other. She married her first husband, an infantry officer, for love, and ran away with him from her father's house. She was exceedingly fond of her husband, but he gave way to cars, got into trouble, and the that, he died. He used to be her at the end. And although she paid him back, of which I have authentic documentary evidence, to this day she speaks of him with tears, and she throws him up to me. And I'm glad, and I'm glad that though only in imagination, she should think of herself as having once been happy, and she was left at his death with three children in a wild and remote district where I happened to be at the time, and she was left in such hopeless poverty that although I have seen many ups and downs of all sorts, I don't feel equal to describing it even, her relations had all thrown her off, and she was proud, too extensively proud, and then, honoured sir, and then I being at the time of widower, that the daughter of fourteen left me by my first wife, offer my hand, for I could not be at the sight of such suffering you can judge the extremity of her calamities that she, a woman of education and culture and distinguished family, should have consented to be my wife. But she did, weeping and sobbing and wringing her hands. She married me. For she had nowhere to turn. Do you understand sir? Do you understand what it means when you have absolutely nowhere to turn? No, but you don't understand yet, and for a whole year I performed my duties consciously and faithfully and it did not touch this. He tapped the duck with his finger. For I have feelings. But even so... I could not please her. And then I lost my place too. And that through no fault of mine. But through changes in the office. And then I did touch it. It will be a year. And a half ago, soon since we found ourselves at last, after many wanderings and numerous calamities, in this magnificent capital adorned with innumerable monuments. Here I obtained a situation, I obtained it, and I lost it again. Do you understand? This time it was through my own fault. I lost it, for my weakness had come out. We have now a part of the room at the Amalia Fedorovna Lipovicials, and what we lived upon, and what we pay our rent with, I could not say. There are a lot of people living there besides ourselves, dirt and disorder, a perfect bedlam, And meanwhile, my daughter by my first wife has grown up. And what my daughter has had to put up from her stepmother while she was growing up, I won't speak of, for though Katerina Ivanovna is full of generous feelings, she's a spirited lady, irritable and short-tempered. But it's no use going over that. Sana, as you may well fancy, has had no education. I did make an effort four years ago to give her a course of geography and in universal history, but as I was not very well up in those subjects myself, and he have no suitable books, what books we had. Anyway, we have not even those now, so all our instruction came to an end. We stopped at Cyrus of Persia. Since she had attained years of maturity, she has read other books of romantic tendency and of late She had read with great interest the book she got to Mr. Elisabethnik, Ulybysiatnikov, Louis' psychology. Do you know it? And even recounted its extracts from it to us. And that's the whole of her education. And now may I venture to address you on it, sir, on my own account, With the private question, do you suppose that a respectable poor girl can earn much by honest work? Not fifteen farthings a day can she earn, if she is respectable and has no special talent and that without putting her work down for an instant. And what's more, Ivan Ivanovich Klopstock, the civil councillor. have you heard of him? Has not this day paid her for the half-dozen lineage shirts she made him and drove her roughly away, stamping and reviling her? On the pretext with the shirt collars were not made like the pattern and were put in askew and there are the little ones hungry and Katerina Ivanovna walking up and down and wringing her hands her cheeks flushed red as they always are in that disease here you live with us, says she. You eat and drink, and are kept warm, and you do nothing to go. And much she gets to eat and drink when there is not a crust for a little once for three days. I was lying at the time. Well, what of it? I was lying drunk, and I heard my Sonia speaking, she's a gentle creature, with a soft little voice, fair hair, and such a pale, thin, little face. She said, Katerina Ivanovna, Am I really to do a thing like that? And Darya Franzovna, a woman of evil character, and a very well known to the police, had two or three times tried to get at her through the landlady. And why not, said Katerina Ivanovna, with the cheer. You are something mighty precious to be so careful of. But don't blame her. Don't blame her. Honored sir, don't blame her. She was near herself when she spoke were driven to distraction by her illness and the crying of hungry children, and it was said more to wound her than anything else. For so that's Katerina Ivanovna's character, and when children cry even from hunger, she falls to beating them at once. At six o'clock I saw Sonya get up put on her kerchief, and her cape and go out of the room and about nine o'clock she came back. She walked straight up to Katerina Ivanovna and she laid 30 rubles on the table before her in silence. She did not utter a word but did not even look at her. She simply picked up our big green, drab-demand shawls. We have a shawl, made of a uh, Put it over her head and face and lay down on the bed with her face onto the wall. Only her little shoulders and her body kept shuddering. And I went on lying there just as before and then i saw young man i saw Katerina ivanovna in the same silence go up to the sona's little bed she was on her knees all the evening kissing sona's feet and would not get up and then they both fell asleep in each other's arms together yes and i lay drunk Murmuladov stopped short, as though his voice had failed him. Then he hardly filled his glass, drank, and cleared his throat. Since then, sir, he went on after a brief pause, since then, owing to unfortunate occurrence and through information given by the evil-intentioned persons, in all which Darya Frantazovna took a leading part in the practice which she had been treated with one of respect since then my daughter Sofya Simonovna has been forced to take a yellow ticket, and owning to that she is unable to go on living with us, For our landlady, Amalia Fedorovna would not hear of it, though she had backed up Darya Frontozovna before and Mr. Lebesyadnikov too. All the trouble between him and Katerina Ivanovna was on the Sana's account. At first, he was from making up to Sana himself then all of a sudden he stood in his dignity how said he can a highly educated man like me live in the same rooms with a girl like that and katrina Ivanovna would not let it pass she stood off her her and so that's how it happened and sonic comes to us now mostly after dark, she comforts Katerina Ivanovna and gives her all she can. She has a room at the Kapernaumovs, the tailors. She lodges with them. Kapernaumov is a lame man with a cleft palate, and all of his numerous family have cleft palates too. And his wife too has a cleft palate. They all live in one room, but Sana has her own, partition aft. Hmm. Yes. They're poor people and all with cleft palates. Yes. Then I got up in the morning and put up on my rags. Lifted up my hands to heaven and sat out to His Excellency Ivan Afanasiewicz. He excel, his, his Excellency Ivan Afanasiewicz. Do you know him? No? Well, then it's a man of God you don't know. He's a wags wag before the face of the Lord. Even as Vax smelteth. His eyes were dim when he heard my story. Marmaladev, once already you have deceived my expectations. I'll take you once more on my own responsibility. That's what he said. Remember, he said, and now you can go. I kissed the dust at his feet and fought only, for in reality he would not have allowed me to do it, being a statesman and a man of modern political and enlightened ideas. I turn home. When I announced when I'd been taken back into the service, I should receive a salary, heavens! What to do there was when stopped again in a violent excitement. At that moment a whole party of revelers already drunk came in front of the street and the sounds of a hired concertina and the cracked pegging voice of a child of seven singing. The hamlets were heard in the entry. The room was filled with noise. The tavern keeper and the boys were busy with the newcomers. Marmaladev paying no attention to the new arrivals continued his story. He appeared by now to be extremely weak, but as he became more and more drunk, he became more and more talkative. The recollection of his recent success in getting the situation seems to revive him and was positively reflected in a sort of radiance on his face. Raskolnikov listened attentively. That was five years ago, sir, yes. As soon as Katerina Ivanovna and Zona heard of it, mercy on us. It was as though I stepped into the kingdom of heaven. It used to be. You can lie like a beast, nothing but abuse. Now they were walking on tip-tie, hushing the children. The man Zaharowicz is tired with his work at the office. He is resting, shh. They made me coffee before I went. To work and boiled cream for me, they began to get real cream for me. Do you hear that? And how they managed to get together my money for the decent outfit—eleven rubles fifty kopecks—I can't guess. Boots, cotton shirt, fronds, most magnificent, a uniform. They got up all in a splendid style, for eleven rubles and a half. The first morning I came back from the office, I found Katerina Ivanovna had cooked two courses for dinner, soup and salt meat, with horseradish, which he had never dreamed of till then. She had not any dresses, none at all, but she hurt herself as though she were going on a visit. And not that she'd anything to do it with. She smartened herself off with nothing at all. she done her hair nicely, put on the clean collar of some sort, cuffs, and there she was, quite a different person. She was younger and better-looking. Sana, my little darling, had only helped with money for the time, she said. It won't do for me to come and see you too often. After dark, maybe when, no one can see. Do you hear? Do you hear? I lay down for a nap after dinner. And what do you think? Though Katerina Ivanovna had quarrelled to the last degree with our landlady Amalia Fedorovna only a week before, she could not resist then asking her into coffee. For two hours we were sitting, whispering together. Semyon is in the service again now, and receiving a salary," says she. And he went himself to his Excellency, and his Excellency himself came out to him, made all the others white, and led Simon Zakharovitch by the hand before everybody into his study. "'Do you hear, do you hear, to be sure,' says he. Simeon zakharovich remembering your past services, says he, and in spite of your propensity to that foolish weakness, since you promise now, and since moreover we've gotten badly without you, do you hear? Do you hear? And so, says he, I rely now on your word as a gentleman, And all that, let me tell you, she has simply made up for herself, not simply out of wantonness for the sake of bragging, no, she believes it all herself, she amuses herself with her own fancies, upon my word, she does, and I don't blame her for it, no. I don't blame her. Six days ago, when I brought her my first earnings in full, twenty-three rubles, forty kopecks altogether, she called me her puppet. Puppet, said she. My little puppet. And when we were by ourselves, you understand. You would not think me a beauty. You would not think much of me as a husband, would you? Well, she pinched my cheek. My little puppet, said she. Marmoladov broke off, tried to smile, but suddenly his chin began to twitch. He controlled himself, however, the tavern a degraded appearance of the man, a 5 nights in the hay barge, and the pot of spirits, and yet this poignant love for his wife and children bewildered his listener. Raskolnikov listened intently, but with the sick sensation, he felt waxed that he had come here. Honored sir, Honoured sir, cried Mormolet, recovering himself. Oh sir, perhaps all this seems a laughing matter to you, as it does to others. And perhaps I am only worrying you, the stupidity of all the trivial details of my home life. But it is this not a laughing matter to me, for I can feel it all and the whole of that heavenly day of my life, and the whole of that evening I passed in fleeting dreams of how I would arrange it all, and how I would dress all the children, and how I should give her rest, and how I should rescue my own daughter from dishonor, and restore her to the bosom of her family, and a great deal more, quite excusable, sir. Well then, sir. Marmolatov suddenly gave a sort of start, raised his head and gazed intently at his listener. Well, on the very next day after all those dreams, that is to say, exactly five days ago, in the evening, by a cunning trick, like a thief in the night. I stole from Katerina Ivanovna the key to of her box, took out what she left of my earnings. How much it was I have forgotten, and now look at me, all of you. It's the fifth day since I left home and they are looking for me there and it's the end of my employment and my uniform is lying in a tavern on the Egyptian bridge. I exchange it for their garments I have on and it's the end of everything. Momolatov struck his forehead with his fist, clenched his teeth, closed his eyes, and leaned heavily with his elbow on the table. But a minute later his face suddenly changed, and with a certain assumed slyness and affection of bravado, he glanced at Raskolnikov, laughed, and said, This morning I went to see Sana. I went to ask her for a pick-me-up. You don't say she gave it to you, cried one of the newcomers. He shouted the words and went off in a gaffer. This very quote was both of her money, Normalev declared, addressing himself exclusively to Raskolnikov. 30 copies, she gave me her own hands, her last, all she had, as I saw, she said nothing, she only looked at me without a word, not on earth, but up yonder, they grieve over man, they weep, but they don't blame them, they don't blame them. But it hurts more, it hurts more when they don't blame. Thirty copics, yes, and maybe she needs them now, eh? What do you think, my dear sir? For now she's got to keep up her appearance. It costs money, that smartness, that special smartness, do you know? Do you understand? And there's permaetum too. You see, she must have things, petticoats, starch ones, shoes, two real daunty ones to show off her foot when she has to step over a puddle. Do you understand, sir, do you understand what all that smartness means? And here are her own father. He had took thirty copics of that money for a drink. And I'm drinking it. And I have already drunk it. Come, who will have pity on a man like me, huh? Are you sorry for me, sir, or not? Tell me, sir, are you sorry or not? He would have filled his glass, but there was no drink left. The pot was empty. "'What are you to be pitied for?' shouted the tavern-keeper, who was again near them. Shouts of laughter and even oaths followed. The laughter and the oaths came from those who were listening, and also from those who had heard nothing but were simply looking at the figure of the discharged government clerk. To be pitied Why am I to be pitied? Marmeladev suddenly declaimed, standing up with his arm outstretched, as though he had been only waiting for that question. Why am I to be pitted, you say. Yes, there is nothing to pity me for. I ought to be crucified, crucified on a cross, not pitied. Crucify me, or judge, crucify me, but pity me, and then I will go on myself to be crucified, for it's not making I seek, but tears and tribulation. Do you suppose you that so? that this pent of yours has been sweet to me. It was tribulation I sought at the bottom of it, tears and tribulation. I have found it, I have tasted it, but he will pity us. Who was had pity on all men, who was understood all men and all things? He is the one. He too is the judge. He will come in that day and he will ask, Where is the daughter who held herself, who gave herself for her cross, consumptive stepmother and for the little children of another? There is the daughter who had pity upon the filthy drunkard, her earthly father. And dismayed by his beastliness. And he will say, Come to me, I have already forgiven thee once. I have forgiven thee once. Thy sins which are many are forgiven thee for thou hast loved much. And he will forgive my son, he will forgive, I know it. I felt it in my heart when I was with her just now. And he will judge, and he will forgive all, the good and the evil, the wise and the meek. And then he has done with all of them, then he will summon us. You come forth, he will say. Come forth, ye drunkards, Come forth, ye weak ones, Come forth, ye children of shame, And we shall all come forth Without shame, And shall stand before him, And he will say unto us, are swine, made in the image of the beast, And that his mark, But come ye also, and the wise ones and those of understanding will say, O Lord, why dost thou receive this man? And he will say, This is why I receive them. O ye wise, this is why I receive them. And ye of understanding, and none of them believe himself to be worthy of this. And he will hold out his hands to us, and we shall fall down before him, and we shall weep, and we shall understand all things, when we shall understand all, and all will understand, Katerina Ivanovna, even she will understand, Lord, thy kingdom come, and he sank down on the bench is hosted, and helpless, looking at. To no one apparently oblivious to his surroundings and plunged in deep thought, his words have created a certain impression. There was a moment of silence, but soon laughter and oaths were heard again. That's his notion told him some Sally a fine clock he is, and so on, and so on. Let us go, sir, said Marmaladev all at once, raising his head and addressing Raskolnikov. Come along with me, Kossil's house, looking into the yard. I'm going to Katerina Ivanovna. Time I did. Raskolnikov had for some time been wanting to go, and he had meant to help him and mulatto was much unsteady on his legs than his speech and leaned heavily on the young man they had two or three hundred paces to go the drunken man was more and more overcome by dismay and confusion as the nearer the horse it's not katerina ivanovna i'm afraid of now he muttered in agitation and that she will begin pulling my hair what does my hair matter bother my hair that's what i say indeed it will be better if she does begin pulling it that's not what i'm afraid of it's her eyes i'm afraid of yeah her eyes the red on her cheeks too frightens me and her breathing too have you noticed how people in that disease breathe when they are excited I'm frightened of the children's crying too? For if Sonny has not taken them food, I don't know what's happened, I don't know, but blows I am not afraid of. No sir, that such blows are not a pain to me, but even an enjoyment, in fact. I can't get on without it. It's better so, let her strike me, it relieves her heart. It's better so, there is the house, the house of Castle, the cabinet maker, a German well-to-do. Lead the way. They went in front yard and up to the fourth story. The staircase got dark and dark as they went up. It was nearly eleven o'clock in summer in Petersburg, there is no real night, yet it was quite dark at the top of the stairs. A grimy little door at the very top of the stairs stood ajar. A very poor-looking chrome, about ten paces long, was lighted up by a candle and the whole of it was visible from the entrance. It was all in disorder, littered up with rags of all sorts, especially children's garments. Across the furthest corner was stretched a ragged sheet. Behind it probably was the bed. There was nothing in the room except two chairs and a sofa covered with American leather, full of holes, before which stood an old deal kitchen table. And paint and uncover it. At the edge of the table stood a smouldering tallow candle, in an iron candlestick. It appeared that the family had room to themselves, not part of the room. But their room was practically a passage, a door leading to the other rooms, or rather cupboards, into which Amelia. Lepachev's flat was divided, stood half open, and there was shouting, uproar, and laughter then. People seemed to be playing cards and drinking tea there. Words of the most unceremonious kind flew out from time to time. Raskolnikov recognized Katerina Ivanovna at once. She was a rather tall, slim and graceful woman terribly emaciated, with magnificent dark brown hair and with the hectic flush in her cheeks. She was pacing up and down in her little room, pressing her hands against her chest. Her lips were parched and her breathing came in the nervous, broken gasps. Her eyes glittered as in fever, and looked about with a harsh, immovable stare. And at the consumptive and excited face, the the last flickering light of the candle end playing upon it made a sickening impression. She seemed to Raskolnikov about thirty years old, and was certainly a strange wife for marmaladev she had not heard them and did not notice them coming in she seemed to be lost in thought hearing and seeing nothing the room was closed but she had not opened the window a stench rose from the staircase but the door on the stairs was not closed. From the inner rooms clouds of tobacco smoke floated in. She kept coughing, but did not close the door. The youngest child, a girl of six, was asleep sitting curled up on the floor with her hat on the sofa. A boy a year older stood crying and shaking in the corner. Probably he had just had a beating. Beside him stood a girl of nine years old, tall and thin, wearing a thin and ragged chemise with an ancient cashmere police flung over the bare shoulders, long outgrown and barely reaching her knees. Her arm, as thin as a stick, was rounded her brother's neck. She was trying to comfort him, whispering something to him and doing all she could to keep him from whimpering again. At the same time, her large dark eyes, which looked larger still from the thinnest of her frightened-off face, were watching her mother with alarm. Marmaladev did not enter the door, but dropped on his knees in a very doorway, pushing Raskolnikov in front of him. The woman seeing a stranger stopped indifferently facing him, coming to herself for a moment and apparently wondering what he had come for, but evidently she decided that he was going into the next room as he had to pass to her to get there. taking no further notice of him, she walked towards the outer door to close it, and uttered a sudden scream on seeing her husband on his knees in the doorway. "'Ah!' Oh, she cried out in a frenzy. "'He has come home! The criminal! The monster! And where is the money?' What's in your pocket? Show me. And your clothes are all different. Where are your clothes? Where is the money? Speak. And she fell on searching him, when Maladev submissively and obediently held up both arms to facilitate the search. Not a farthing was there. There is the money, she cried, mercy on us. Can he have drunk it all? There were twelve silver rubles left in the chest. And in a fury, she seized him by the hair and dragged him into the floor. Marmeladov seconded her efforts by meekly crawling along, along his knees. And this is a consolation to me. This does not hurt me, but is a positive consolation on sir!" He called out, shaken to and fro by his hair, and even one striking the ground with his forehead. The child, asleep on the floor, woke up and began to cry, the bar in the corner, Losing all control began trembling and screaming and rushed to his sister, in a violent terror, almost in a fit. The eldest girl was shaking like a leaf. He's drunk it, he's drunk it all the poor woman screamed in despair, and his clothes are gone, and they are hungry, hungry and, wringing her hand, she pointed to the children. A cursed life, and you, are you not ashamed? She pounced all at once upon Raskolnikov. From the tavern? Have you been drinking for him? You have been drinking with him, too. Go away! The young man was hastening away without uttering a word. The inner door was thrown wide open, and inquisitive faces were peering in at it. Cool, laughing faces with pipes and cigarettes and hats wearing caps thrust themselves in at the doorway. farther in could be seen figures in dressing-gowns flung open. In costumes of unseemly scantiness, some of them with cards in her hands. They were particularly diverted when Marmaladev, dragged about by his hair, shouted that it was a consolation to him. They even began to come into the room at last. A sinister, shrill outcry was heard. This came from Amalia Li vessels herself, pushing her way amongst them and trying to restore order after her own fashion and for the hundredth time to frighten the poor woman by ordering her with coarse abuse to clear out of the room next day as she went on. Raskolnikov had time to put his hand in his pocket, to snatch up the coppers he had received in exchange for his ruble in the tavern, and to lay them unnoticed on the window. Afterwards, on the stairs, he changed his mind and would have gone back. What a stupid thing I've done, he thought to himself, they have Sanna, and I want it myself. But reflecting that it would be impossible to take it back now, and that in my case he would not have taken it, he dismissed it with a wave of his hand and went back to his lodging. Sanna once made him too, he said as he walked along the street. And he laughed, malignantly, Such smartness cost money. Hmm, and maybe Sana herself will be brain crap today, for there is always a risk, hunting big game, digging for gold, Then they would all be without crust tomorrow, except for my money. we for Sana. what a mind they've dug there and they are making the most of it. Yes, they are making the most of it. They are wept over it and grown used to it. Man grows used to everything, the scoundrel." He sank into thought. And what if I am wrong? He cried suddenly after a moment's thought. What if a man is not really a scoundrel man in general, I mean, the whole race of mankind. Then all the rest is prejudice, simply artificial terrors, and there are no barriers, and it's all as it should be. The end of chapter 2, part 1.